Hey, um, another day of quarantine around the world. Um, this is Real Sankara Hours. Real Sankara Hours. Follow us at Sankara Hours. This is Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson 5 on Twitter. This is Peter M. Gunn. Follow me at M. Gunn Peter. M G U N N Peter, though I don't really tweet much. Yeah, this past week, uh, I'm always one of those people who doesn't really believe that time moves in a linear fashion, and I feel like this week proves it, because it does feel like yeah. every day just lasts forever. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what, like, any... I don't want to, like, be over dramatic, but it is very... It's a very sh- different feeling from, like, it's, you know, especially having gone through, like, the you know, the work schedule for so long, then just suddenly going out of it. It's uh, It's very strange. And now, and now it's like we finally got, or at least the city of Portland finally got its shelter in place. So now I'm like, all right, finally, I shouldn't actually go outside, not make my daily trip to the grocery store or whatever. So now it's like, I really am about to start going crazy. But I also, I, I eased up off of the drinking to kind of protect my health, uh, which you should do. Cause you got, this is a marathon, not a sprint, y'all. We got like two or three more weeks of this shit, at least. I mean, no, we're gonna, we're all, we're all going back by Easter. We were gonna, we're all gonna offer ourselves as a blood sacrifice on Easter, so the markets can rise. Yeah, we are sacrificing our bodies and souls to the gods of the market, uh, because yeah, that's the only god we pray to in America is the god of the market, the stock market, the Dow Jones, and the Nasdaq. Lines gotta um, go up. I mean, honestly, like I kind of it does almost make me understand like human sacrifice from like a social societal management standpoint, where it's just like, yeah, I mean, you know, even if you don't, even if like you know the high priests don't know what they're doing or whatever. It's like they got to look like they're doing something. And so it's like, I think maybe like, it's like, yeah, maybe if we sacrifice more people, then like everyone else will be like, oh, shit, they're taking this really seriously. And then like, it'll be like a collective. I don't know. <laughs> I was, I just got me thinking about it. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's March. We're recording this on March 26, 2020. And uh, today, um, America is number one. In the number of confirmed cases of COVID nineteen in the world, USA, USA, Woo! USA, number one, we everything, baby. China, we yeah. surpassed China, Italy, Spain. So yeah, like we're number one in the. Yeah, fuck yeah, this America, baby. Yeah, we're number one confirmed case, number one country. I yeah, but Adam, Adam, cases. Easy, easiest parts getting the title, hardest parts holding on to it. Oh yeah, yeah, we gotta. So yeah, guys. So uh, keep violating social distancing. Get sick, and we can stay. Go back. Go back to work. Let's all. Let's all go back to work. Especially service industry. Uh, yeah, just don't wash your hands ever, because you know we gotta keep it going. Look, guys. Uh, yeah, I. That's what, and that's what. Um, you know, people like Donald Trump. That's what they want. It's like, hey, go back to work, so we can keep keep that number one status. Um. Yeah, and so. <laughs> I mean, putting putting that aside, in addition to, you know, this number one status, this very grim number one status, because it's not like America's number one much in anything else, except for military spending and the number of military. Oh, Adam, you forgot prison population. 
All right, prison population. We're number one in prison population. Over two million people uh, in in correctional facilities. I, we're probably place. number one in trucks that are too big to fit in their own garages, because that's apparently a problem yeah. now. Yeah. Um, number one, definitely in military bases, anywhere between 800 to nearly 1,000 uh, military bases and installations across the globe. Number one in military spending, at least uh, one, one of the last defense bills that was passed by Congress by both parties was around over $700 billion for the defense for the, the defense spending. But, uh, but Even more than what Trump wanted. But Nikki Haley tweeted out today, apparently, like, yeah, but we're giving like $25 million to the National Endowment for the Arts. And, uh, you know how many lives Ooh. we could be saving with that money? I love, I love that they haven't given up on attacking the NEA. It is like, yeah. like, we're so pathetically underfund, like, arts and culture in the United States. And even that is, like, still too much for these people. It's insane. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to transition into kind of breaking down the bits and nuts and bolts of this. So there is this big ass uh, stimulus package that's, I think, most likely going to be passed, going to be passed by Congress. The Senate, um, passed theirs just recently it's 2.2 trillion dollars so it's being <clears throat> reported and marketed as um coronavirus uh relief because of the you know the pandemic that's pretty much all throughout the world right now um in the u.s we have the most um as as of this recording anyway we have the highest number of confirmed cases of covid19 in the world um so this bill is being marketed as you know, market marketed by the politicians and also reported in a lot of mainstream news outlets as like relief for, you know, average people and small businesses and corporations because, you know, there's basically been essentially like a stop and a freeze, so to speak, and sort of like normal everyday life in America. So, you know, so people... A lot of people are not working. Um, by the way, uh, we have um, basically unemployment could approach 30%, um, yeah. according to the Fed. Yeah, so really... I don't know it, if that's jobless pretty, rate or unemployment, but either way, it's pretty bad. It's, it's pretty um, ridiculous. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's job... Um, yeah, unemployment, job, joblessness, um, and the num the number of applications for unemployment insurance just keeps going up and yeah. up. And by the way, just to give some context, this is even higher than two thousand eight during oh, the yeah. two thousand eight recession. Well, yeah, so well, I forgot. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, they've. I'm very. I'm kind of. I'm starting to get annoyed right now because like I got approved for unemployment, but like I guess they haven't like sent the checks and. When I talk, I talk to them on the live chat because apparently, like, the Department of Labor has a live chat now, and yeah, they're just like, "Yeah, we're really backed up," but I'll let you know if there's anything wrong with it. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of nuts. I just hope it comes in by the first, though. It's you know, that's also bad because I guess like I I had alluded to it earlier, um, but my wonderful giant developer landlord is trying to evict me so i have to deal with that crap um but i don't know if they can do it i don't know maine hasn't really like put a serious freeze on evictions it's it's very it's very weird all the different stuff um people are going through i've been seeing a lot of like different uh 
like very mean landlord letters being sent like your rent is still due if you're laid off you can just get another job i'm like and then all these well we'll talk about landlords later um but uh yeah yeah there's actually there's actually a landlord story that ties into that that i'll i'll, I'll bring up um a landlord in new york city so this this bill basically this 2.2 trillion um i think thir- 377 billion is supposed to go to loans and grants for small businesses so the stimulus checks so it's basically so this is this is the thing that gets uh sort of covered a lot so um there are going to be one thousand two hundred dollar checks for millions of americans and so I'm, I'm quoting from the washington post this is their sort of like little factoid here um the legislation would give taxpayers twelve hundred dollars per adult and five hundred dollars per child the benefit would be smaller for individual taxpayers earning over seventy five thousand dollars annually or one hundred fifty thousand dollars for a couple filing jointly and disappear altogether for individuals earning over ninety thousand um so and i think from what i understand uh, this relief is largely temporary and yeah. it's supposed to like you're supposed to get the check every month for i think f- i think four months um i i don't anyway, i don't even know about that it's hard to find concrete info but it is like yeah. uh very means tested and it is very i i heard it like i don't know i got when i uh bought... also it's not it's not a it's not a ubi oh no like in terms of def in terms of definitely definitely speaking uh just just to clarify um universal basic income un- or some people call it un- unconditional basic income it's not supposed to be means test it's supposed to be a universal program essentially which i don't think i don't think you buy ubi is enough but it's not it, in practice it's not supposed to be means tested yeah which this one is yeah and also uh i don't know if you're well it's like if you don't have a job then you're not eligible or if you uh like you only get six hundred dollars or something and if you're a fuck up like me and maybe didn't do your tax returns in 2018 you may not get anything um so yeah like do your taxes now if you haven't um because they'll be going by that though they extended it to july but then they also want to it's it seems like such an easy political layup and they're just like messing it up entirely and it is it's always quite telling that they can like there's so much fretting and about like oh we don't want to make sure the right people are getting it whereas meanwhile it's like oh all right airlines here's here how about i don't even know what it is like how about 60 billion okay you know yeah cruise industry how or whatever the numbers are (laughs) so so um so yeah so the total of this package once you add all those checks up supposed to be uh 290 billion then there's expanded unemployment benefits totaling around uh, 260 billion. You can also thank um, Bernie Sanders for that woo, because woo. he was the one who he was the one who put that amendment in. Amendment the King. The, the largest chunk, the most significant chunk, and the most controversial and controversial is putting it mildly. Probably the most fucked up part of this bill is basically the loans for um uh big uh basically um big bis- big business essentially um there's also ta- tax cuts for uh businesses as well but um essentially uh okay so wait hold on i'm, I'm kind of scrolling through this washington post article which i'll put i'll put um in the description but they're saying uh 
you know, they're saying uh, aid to large businesses, new oversight message, measures, whatever the fuck that means. Um, oh. anytime, look, anytime, oh, anytime I... they mention over oversight, it, 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 most of the time it's bullshit. Yeah, um, I think the way Chapo phrased it or someone, they're like, oh, there's a manager. They put in a manager you can call. Typical Democrat shit. Um, yeah, it is. They don't know that's exactly what it is. Um, this is this is slightly related, but like, I mean, a lot of a lot of reporting I've I've been doing is you know before this podcast has been related to Guantanamo and national security, and even when it comes to oversight for U.S. covert operations, that's that's essentially what it is. Like like the reforms after the reforms during the seventies, the church they were talking. <laughs> yeah, those were the reforms passed uh, by the church committee. It was no yeah. real like Congress had no I, teeth when it came I... to proving and disproving covert operations. That's basically what it was. So when when so when they're saying oversight in the context of this, that's a, that's yeah. it's just yeah, it's just basically like I, calling a manager, it's so, calling a hotline. Or it's something. so that's funny to me to think about how they're like, you're not supposed to be doing this. Like in the seventies, they like figured out all the shit the CIA was doing. They're like. You're not supposed to oh, be yeah. doing this to American citizens. And they're like, all right, we'll stop. And they're like, ah, and that's the end of that chapter. And the CIA <laughs> never spied on an American citizen ever again. And like, people believed this shit for a very long, yeah. uh, basically until Snowden, people were like, yeah, no, the CIA would never do that. Are you, are you kidding? There's like an imaginary line where it's like, oh yeah, no, once we're in America. Despite have despite having a uh, literal splitter cable attached to the internet ca- internet cord on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, oh no, we would we would never do that to Americans. Like, yeah. Anyway, yeah, so, uh, I'm I'm gonna I would I think it'd be good to actually just just I'll I'll put a pin in this to do it like an episode on on the the permanent war state because I have a lot to say yeah. on that. But when I heard the word oversight. I've seen that used There's in the no context of national security, and it's usually not real oversight. There's no. no teeth to it. It's it's just it's just window. It's, it's all it's all it's and all it, PR. It's all people looking yeah. like they're doing something. So they're using this in the context of this of aid giving to large businesses, um, and so uh, so you know a part of this uh, Washington Post what they're saying is like one of the more controversial provisions in the package is a provision for hundreds of billions of dollars in loans for large businesses getting hit hard by the outbreak critics have called that provision a bailout for corporate america the plan includes aid for severely distressed industries consisting primary of loans and loan guarantees allocated by the treasury department and the federal reserve okay so i'm gonna i'm gonna pause here because i'm gonna i'm gonna read from two other articles by people who've been covering um uh the sort of the the fuckery of the financial sector for a long time so zach carter and uh david dayan i think made some really sharp points that get overlooked so david dayan has a piece he's now i think the editor uh, one of the main editors of the american prospect and he wrote a a piece about this bill um yeah yesterday okay so uh, and I want to, I'm going to read two quotes from them and then just, just basically explain the, as best as I can, the, the nuts and bolts of this. So, um, he, he's saying, you know, the other 425 helped capitalize a four. So, so the four, the, a lot of these numbers keep changing day by day, but what really like the, the actual number 
doesn't really matter per se. What matters is like one, the scale, which we're talking about billions to trillions of dollars, and the the fundamentals of what's going on. So I'm just I'm just gonna quote from uh, the the day in piece, and what he's saying. The other 425, which is basically referring to the aid given to big business, helps capitalize a 4.25 trillion with a T leveraged lending facility at the Federal Reserve. The taxpayer dollars would soak up any losses from that lending program. The loans won't be secret anymore, but the oversight is largely after the fact without subpoena power and mainly reduced to writing reports. Again, hence why I said the, the term oversight used in this context is largely bullshit. It's just writing a report. There's no subpoena. There's no actual power when it comes to it, making it'll, sure that, It'll be know, a it, strongly it, worded report. Right, right. Um, and so it, it, Dave, Dan goes on. He said, so it's not a $2 trillion bill. It's closer to $6 trillion and $4.3 trillion of it comes in the form of a bazooka aimed at CEOs and shareholders with almost no conditions attached. I'm going to read from the Zach Carter piece in Huffington Post. Um, so um, I think he wrote this. Yeah, he wrote this yesterday as well. So uh, final text of the bill, this is Zach Carter, has not been released. But according to a legislative draft, the new law would establish a $4.5 trillion corporate bailout fund overseen by Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin with few st- uh, substantive constraints. Some outlets are reporting this as a $500 billion fund. But $425 billion of that can be leveraged 10 times over by the Federal Reserve, resulting in a multi-trillion dollar program. So um, basically, like this kind of leveraged lending, to, to explain it in very, very um, uh, cr- crude and simple terms, is basically another form of free money to banks and corporations. To, uh, uh, I'm explaining it at the yeah. Yeah. Excuse excuse basically... me. I'll have you know that JP Morgan Chase paid back every cent of that eight hundred billion dollars they demanded to get into them immediately over the course of like ten years or something. So how dare you at least they told us that they did. So how dare you accuse yeah. these corporations of not having the best interests of the American government in mind? And so and, and so this also comes in line with a round of quantitative easing by the Federal Reserve, which is separate from this bill. So basically, the Federal Reserve announced in order to es- essentially assure liquidity in the financial market in a larger economy. So uh, quantitative easing is basically. Um, so in this context, when you're talking about lending that the Federal Reserve, which is the central bank in, in the United States, that the Federal Reserve gives to uh, major big banks. Um, the Federal Reserve isn't actually physically printing money. This is all done by computer. So I'll, the nuts and bolts of it is basically like this. So in the context of a crisis, right? Like, so in this case, you have a worldwide pandemic. That's going to send shockwaves to the financial market, right? Because there's a lot of trading when it comes to securities and investments in the financial market it's all flowing and it's supposed to go to um, oftentimes people's pensions are, are, are tied in the financial market. Um, this is loans, stuff like that, right? Large amounts of capital flowing around that's supposed to, that's supposed to be tied to the real economy. But in large part, like there's been a huge divergence between the real economy and the financial market. So in order to ensure the basically health and liquidity of the financial market, the banks are panicking because they're anticipating, okay, if there's this global pandemic that's going to hit not just the United States, but the entire world, 
it's going to impact the the stability of the bank's portfolios because what's also on their portfolios are a lot of other loans and securities that they're giving out so for example so if these if these banks have on their portfolios like let's say loans that they're giving out mortgages they're going to giving out um, they're going to be anticipating a lot of defaults as a result of the pandemic. If people are going to be out of work for a long time, it's going to be more difficult for people to, to pay off those loans and those mortgages. So the banks are like, okay, we're looking at our portfolio and like, okay, we're anticipating that like we're going to get a lot of losses on our portfolio because people are going to de be defaulting on their mortgages and loans. So basically, and so so the banks in this situation have um, one of two things. One, what they can do just to essentially balance their portfolios and make sure the ratios are even what they can do is like one way they can do it is basically all right we're just gonna stop lending uh loans that much just just to even out the ratio but that would basically cause a recession so and so another another approach would be okay we'll just get money from the federal reserve so what the federal reserve does is they quote unquote buy those sorts of risky of loans and assets that the banks have in their portfolio and the fed is like okay we'll absorb that risk on your portfolio and basically absorb it into the american currency so to speak um and then the way that transaction occurs is in the form of quantitative easing which is basically like we're just going to give the banks trillions of dollars on their portfolio to basically even out that ratio so that's basically how yeah. it works, and so so they're getting these multiple rounds of of qu uh, quantitative easing. And by the way, since two thousand eight, for for most of the Obama years, interest rates have been incredibly low. Right now, yeah. they're basically zero. they're, they're literally the zero. Obama. They're literally zero right now. Throughout the Obama years, there were somewhere like zero point. They're like yeah, they're like half a percent. Um, yeah. So if so, I um, if I if I may, if, um, I don't want to mess up your train of thought, um, but. With regards to like quantitative easing, like this is basically without that, that is basically what happened in the Great Depression. Um, if you if you've ever seen It's a Wonderful Life, I know it's a very corny ideological movie, um, but there's there's sort of the infamous scene where like sort of the crash is happening and everyone comes to the bank to get their money out, and Jimmy Stewart is like, I don't have your money. It's in Bill's house and, and Fred's house and all this stuff. And, you know, the point, and he's just like, you know, small time bank or whatever. But that's the idea is that, like, um, the banks don't really have, like, the actual money, like, you know, saved up in a vault of everyone's accounts. So if there's a run on the banks, then like they just close down and then everyone's money is just gone. And so that's why like when you're at the bank and you see like, that's why like one of the New Deal things was like the FDIC. Uh, you know, if you see that at the bank, that was one of the things that, you know, was invented, um, you know, precisely to avoid that happening. But now it's just sort of metastasized into just like, you know, basically just kind of like pumping air. It's like, you know, hooking an air pump into the economy and just inflating it and inflating it. And, you know, as long and, you know, I guess it's like very strong material so that like it never actually bursts. But I don't know. It's it's one of those things where it's like it shouldn't burst or, or you know, history shows that capitalism like has boom and bust cycles. But it seems right now they're like pretty convinced they're really betting on the idea that that won't happen. 
and I don't, but I don't think they can actually solve sort of the fundamental problems. They're just kind of putting everything off until after the election. And then I think is when all the bills will start to come due. Yeah. And so like, so this is the quantitative easing part, which is what the federal reserve is doing. That's separate from this stimulus package, which was passed by um, Congress. So on one hand, so basically the banks are essentially getting a lot of like basically just free money from the federal reserve to basically um, what the federal reserve is basically doing is um, is absorbing risk, which is, this is one feature of capitalism, capitalism is that usually the risk is absorbed by the public and the benefits go to the, the private corporations, the big banks. So big banks, corporations, they get the benefits, but the risk of, of, of what they're doing in the market gets absorbed by the public. So with this quantitative easing, you could you kind of see it working in that sense. So they're getting quantitative easing in addition to the stimulus package, which allows for essentially um, large corporations to keep um, uh, 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 getting more and more money from the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve. And again, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Um, I'm pretty sure he, he put that in there. Um, by the way, Steve Mnuchin was... Um, I'm trying to remember one one of his um he was definitely involved in the financial sector. Peter, do you uh, I'm trying to remember. There's, there's, was, I don't remember the specific company. thing. It might have been countrywide. I don't think it's countrywide. Yeah. Or was that country? It was one of I don't know. One 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 of um one one of the banks he was uh uh involved in was uh ha- um highly involved in the foreclosure crisis. And um at the time, um, Kamala Harris was uh, Attorney General of California. One West Bank, okay, uh, it was one West. Yeah, he was involved. Um, yeah, what one of his uh, banks was involved in the the foreclosure crisis, and um, uh, Kamala Harris basically, um, yeah, it was one West Bank. There you go. Um, yeah, he's got, he's got a bank. lot of of very interesting shit tied to him. If you want to look it mm-hmm. up, though, honestly, I shouldn't yeah. just say it's funny when people are like, just Google it. Like, you really can't just Google shit anymore. Like, people no. have like, S- like the SEO managed reputation firms have got that shit unlocked. So people really need to stop saying just Google stuff because that like will probably not work. Honestly, these days, like I discovered looking up Jim Clyburn, and and also uh, to to make it even more real. So like, um, one one of the provisions of the new deal in the 1930s was to essentially uh create a firewall called the glass-steagall act to separate commercial banking from investment banking and you know who got rid of that firewall it was bill clinton um so that was the uh was it commodity futures and modernization act Mm -hmm. i i I watched i watched my fucking inside job (laughs) uh yeah, Commodities Future uh, Modernization Act of uh, yeah. 2000. It was signed into law December 21st, 2000 by pre- then-President Bill Clinton, which essentially essentially um, made it easier for you know your regular mortgage, which is in com- commercial banking, which is supposed to be you know have stronger protections and be protected by the federal government um, and all that. Uh, it made it easier for mortgages to be uh, absorbed and traded in uh, the investment banking sector. So, yeah, that's still in place. Yeah, so now, yeah. So to, like, okay. to, to really, like, make that clear, what that means is, like, they basically, like, it was totally okay for, I guess, like, 
10 years. Um, and I mean, I think like it's still, they probably still do it now, but it's totally okay for like a bank to just like take the money you gave them on your mortgage and then just put in the stock market and just like see what happens and just big money on its own money. Um, yep. There was a, yeah. And so, yeah, we should, we need to get into like the heavy degree of financialization in the eighties and nineties. Cause thinking about like that and also like GM, I was reading some stuff about what they did and it's, it's just completely, it's completely insane. Like the level of speculation that is like seven times removed from like the actual productive economy. Yeah. And so we're, we are making, um, a lot of comparisons to 2008 because well, one, I mean, both Peter and I, uh, entered adulthood right around that time and the stock market crashed then, but also like what's happened is that like, we're repeating the same mistakes of 2008. Um, and so, so when it, you know, when it, when it comes to, uh, again, these banks trying to balance their portfolios, essentially it's like, okay, so, so if you own a home, uh, your mortgage is tied up to this bank, which is tied up to this investment bank, which is tied up to this other investment bank. And then they have these portfolios and then the same with, uh, landlords, especially since, you know, over half of, you know, mo- most people in this country, large number of people in this country, uh, rent, they don't own homes, they rent. So your landlord, the reason why another reason why landlords are being like you know they, they they still want people to pay rent is because they have to pay they have to pay the the you know the value of the mortgage on that property which again is owned by this bank which is owned by another bank and all that etc etc right so it's this big sort of like um giant sort of interconnected web of people owing people shit and it all goes back to the central bank, which is the central bank, which is the Federal Reserve, is there to basically keep the money flowing so there's no shock wave, um, which would cause a crisis in the larger um, market. And before I continue, I, I want to define what market means, because I think like when we're talking it's, about it's, it's the greatest of- thing of all time and it has always <laughs> existed even before humans and will always exist for all of eternity. And you can (laughs) never, ever say anything bad about it or ever think about a world without it because it is bigger than even like cosmic existence itself. Yeah. And like markets, I think what happens is people mistake markets just for exchange or trade so a market system or a market is basically a way of how you allocate resources so you have people who are sellers who exchange goods goods and services for money from buyers that's a market right and so and then so replace that good and service with let's say um i don't know healthcare, right or education and I'm mentioning I'm mentioning that because, you know, there are certain things that should not be subjected to market forces. And then when you're talking about financial markets, people are trading essentially financial securities in derivatives at low transaction costs. This is a very like kind of basic rough definition of of markets. And securities are used are usually stocks and bonds. And so there's basically it's basically people are are you know. There's like a transaction going on between goods and services yeah. on one end and yeah. on the other. Yeah, there's, or if I can sort of draw that out. Sure, go ahead, yeah, yeah. It's like, so say you like, you know, if there's like a thing that everyone needs, you know, you know, say it's like uh, doorknobs, 
or whatever, there's two ways you could go about determining how many doorknobs are being made. You could basically like survey how many doorknobs people need in the society and, you know, basically how, you know, maybe and plan for how many um, doorknobs that people would need in any given year and then be like, all right, the and tell the doorknob makers like, okay, this is how many doorknobs you need to make. Um, that seems that seems like it makes sense, right? No, wrong. You're wrong. That is communism, and you're evil for thinking that's a good idea. Um, instead, the proper way, the most socially responsible way to determine how many doorknobs are being made should be made is just to like set the prices, you know, charge as much as you can and see how many people will pay for as many doorknobs, and you know, if it and like. If people aren't paying, people if people aren't buying enough doorknobs so that the doorknob makers can make enough money, then we'll just find new ways, invent new kinds of doorknobs to sell to you, so that we can make more doorknobs, way more doorknobs than anyone may actually need. Um, and also, like even, but even though we have that many doorknobs, we'll set it at such a point so that like. There are people who need doorknobs but can't afford them, but too late for them. And if they try to take any of the doorknobs we don't need, then we'll put them in jail. And that's that's so the market another, system. So here's another need that usually gets subjected to market forces. Housing. Everyone needs housing, but what's the best way to allocate housing? Is it through like, okay, we'll just have you know uh, public housing or community land trusts, which basically um, community land trusts are essentially you have like some sort of nonprofit that usually... Uh, owns and buys the land but guarantees that the land is always going to be very very cheap and so the uh, actual physical structure that sits on that land it, it stabilizes the price so you can either do it that way where it's like okay well we'll just have land be subject to market speculation that's why you see rents go high particularly places like california new york city the reason why rents are so fucking high in places like the bay area in new york city and large metropolitan areas is because that land is seen as valuable for a variety number of reasons so it's subject to and and not always because like a lot of people want to live there but just because it's seen as you know like a valuable investment um Exactly. This is, exactly. you know, this it go that goes a lot deeper because it like land speculation is a big, big reason like for settler colonialism and sort of like the need yep. to expand. And it was like one of America's mm-hmm. main like sources of like economic activity until basically like the late 1800s was land speculation. And so we have a very mm-hmm. proud tradition of it. Um, so it's very hard to get rid of. Um, I'll, I'll keep going. I'll, I'll, I'll wrap this up, but also like land speculation was also tied to slavery because part of, part of the logic for the land speculation was like, they were going to use that land for plantations and to have slave labor on that. So it's like, okay, you have like the land, which is previously inhabited by, you know, millions of indigenous people. Then it's like the settlers, okay, we're going to kill these people. Once all those people are dead, you can now speculate on the land, how much it's worth, and then use that land to, uh, um, build plantations and, and cultivate uh, valuable cash crops. Um, that that can be. We'll we'll go further into that. But like, dur- I'll just say like during this quarantine, I am reading. Um, I've mentioned this book before. Uh, the half has never been told. Hold on, let me grab it. Um, the half has never been told: slavery and the making of American capitalism by Edward E. Baptist. Um, you know, we're all in quarantine. We're indoors, so. If you want a good book, 
hefty book over 500 pages about um how uh slavery built american capitalism uh this is a pretty good book um anyway i'll i'll, I'll wrap this up and then we can sort of uh, tie into i'll mention what i think should be done with this bill so um so basically like with this bill and the quantitative easing the people who are getting the most uh relief are large corporations and the big banks and and i think what's really going on um is that big corporations and big banks are looking at a crisis namely a uh global pandemic and are seeing an opportunity to make a lot of money the neoliberal um, because... ethos and there is a statement where one of them said the quiet part out loud the ceo of boeing he was being interviewed i believe on maria bartiromo and so usually so usually with with with, if the government or the federal reserve is going to lend banks and corporations money logically there should be strings attached conditions attached so what should have been done during a financial crisis is that like okay if there's this bailout is going to be given to these big banks who created a crisis? By the way, the 2008 crisis was the fault of the big banks. So it's like, okay, you guys created this crisis. This is your mess. Um, and so excuse now, me. Now- some libertarian on Facebook told me that it was because poor people of color got a bunch of homes that they shouldn't have bought. I was told that. Right. Well, uh, they're wrong. Um, <laughs> it, I, I won't. I won't go. I won't go. That. That. Oh man. That. Yeah, we really we really should have an episode on on the financial crisis because there's so much to unpack there. But basically, um, a lot of banks, just to kind of tie this in, uh, a lot of banks are basically trying to pressure more and more people to buy homes even if they couldn't afford it. So there's that. Um, but anyway, so this is a crisis. That was a crisis 2008, largely of the bank's creation. So the government had to bail them out. But during that time, people on the left and progressives were saying, okay, we can't just give the banks this money with this kind of money with no conditions to it. The banks have to restructure in order to prevent this kind of crisis from happening again. That did not happen. And also, um, the other part of it was that why isn't the relief given to homeowners, the people who lost their homes, the people who really bore the brunt of that crisis? There is very little... Uh, relief given to homeowners most of the so-called relief was given to the banks again in order to essentially ensure the stability of this market system and to keep it flowing that was really the point of the bailout and you can see the same thing happening with this so-called stimulus because because of this global pandemic the ones who are really bearing the brunt of it are everyday people like you and i you know, like like millions of people being out of work, homeless people, you know, people who are struggling to work and make rent because of this pandemic. Um, those are the we're, we're the people who need the most relief. But in this bill, the most of the relief is not going to us; is going to big business and the large banks. Um, and so, and then that that's really the big picture. And also, also before I continue, I really want to make this point clear because this has not been mentioned enough uh this pandemic and the reason why it's so severe in this country is because of donald trump and here's why because donald trump the trump administration and the u.s government knew that this crisis that the pandemic was coming 
to American shores. There were there were U.S. intelligence reports from fucking January and February hmm. warning about a very likely pandemic. Funny. Also, months months before months before the United States fired its C- CDC expert in China. So we fired the one of the experts we had in China to monitor this crisis there were intelligence reports warning that hey there, there could be a pandemic that's very likely to hit the united states um there were several several warning signs about the pandemic and donald trump and his administration chose to do nothing why here's why here's why the reason why he refused test kits the reason why if, if there were, if there would have been more test kits the number of cases of coronavirus would have been higher. If that number would have been high, it would have spooked the stock market. So in order to not spook the stock market, Donald Trump refused any testing, tried to play it down, said it was a hoax, blah, 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 tried to to downplay how severe it was, just in order to, again, preserve this kind of, this sort of like, religion we have in America, which is the stock market system. uh... Everything that's been done is to essentially to ensure lines gotta go up ensure yeah to please that stupid ass line on the stock market um and and so basically the reason why this crisis is so severe because we could have prevented this crisis i mean we, yeah you know there's no fact there's no vaccine right there's no vaccine in terms in so we can't prevent it in terms of of uh actually quote-unquote curing it but th- there were several warning signs to prepare for it to make it not as severe as it is now and the reason why this crisis is is as severe as it is and why the united states has the number one highest number of of covid19 cases in the world right now is because it is because of donald trump and the number of people and i'm I'm gonna go even further the number of people who are going to die in the next year because of covid19 you can the blood is on trump's hands yeah and i'm gonna say this again the number of people, there are thousands of people in the next year who are going to die because of COVID-19. And the reason why is because of Donald Trump and his administration and the fact that they dis- they did not do anything because they were far more concerned about pleasing the stability of the market rather than the health and the safety of 300 million Americans within, within the United States. So, but... Yeah. And th- that really, really, and there's no accountability for it. No. There's no. Accountability oh no! Oh, the, the, the Dems, the Dems are holding them accountable. <laughs> I mean, this impeachment shit that they had about Russia and all this stuff is like, okay, we spent four fucking years about this Russia Gate shit, but it's like, oh, okay, so th- that largely turned up. It didn't turn up much, but when mm-hmm. it comes to a pandemic that you can definitely lay at the hands of a sitting U.S. president wow. who did nothing, who sat around like Emperor Nero as Rome burns, that's basically killing a huge chunk of the American population, there's probably going to be no accountability, no impeachment yeah. for that. Well, and he'll probably get reelected because the Democrats chose to have someone like Joe Biden, who is basically like walking around comatose running against... So you have someone like Biden who's, yeah. running, against, uh, who's running against Trump. And so this is what is it's variating um if yeah oh yeah i will i would like to say that um especially when you bring up impeachment we should not lose sight of the fact that uh we're not giving mike pence enough credit for all this honestly he's been running point on a lot of this stuff on a lot of the covid on the coronavirus response yeah and you know with the man with such a stellar record of like uh basically creating his own HIV crisis in 
Indiana in like 2015. Um, it's funny that you brought up religion. Um, it makes it honestly, it makes perfect sense. Trump, I, I'm sure barely has any idea what's going on. They just, they they just, I think he just like sits in the bedroom watching Fox news and they're like, sir, we need you. And then he, they like haul him out and they, you know, make him give a stupid little speech and then they shove him back in the closet. Um, I don't think I, I re- I mean, I don't think I never really assumed he's like running the country that much, but it is also just like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to get mad about it in the sense of like, yeah, I knew that of course I was going to, of course they're going to do that. Of course they're going to do that. It's, I don't know. In many ways, like, I feel like there's kind of a, and I think a lot of us, you know, sitting around in our rooms or whatever, it's like a minute miniature regression to childhood in a way. And part of how that manifests for me is that I remember as a kid always like uh, thinking like, man, America is like just like a really mean place. And it seems like they don't care about you, like unless you're like working as hard as you possibly can. That seems doesn't seem right. But at the same time, it's like, oh, no, we really care about your safety. You know, we really care. It's a very sort of Midwestern like. You know, I mean, it's certainly just plenty in the blue states, but I mean, I guess ex- I kind of experienced it as this sort of, sort of Midwestern kind of uh, right wing like, uh, yeah, no, we totally care about you guys. And this is how we show it. And of course, we care about your health. And this is how we show it. And it's really fa- I've, I don't know. It's brought back a lot of those feelings because it is just like, oh, yeah, no, they like social distancing great way to make the people responsible for it. Get the get the heat off the government and the fact that like. Oh yeah, nobody can get tested. If they just fucking tested everyone, then everyone would know whether they can go out or not. Instead, we have to do like all these stupid games. I mean, like whatever, follow them. Okay, I'm not that, so, but it is so, stupid. So, so the uh, CEO of um, of uh, Boeing. I want I want to go back to the point mm-hmm. I was making about Boeing. Um, it was uh, so he was asked on uh this is david calhoun he's the ceo of boeing so so this is one of the industries that's getting a bailout because obviously because it's global pandemics having a huge impact on traveling the airline i mean but boeing makes more than uh civilian planes too so they really get to do whatever they want because they can just also cite national security also 90, 96%, somewhere around 96% of their cash they receive is used for stock buybacks, not used for improving services or, or increasing the pay increasing the pay of uh, people who work in the airline industry. Anyway, so David Calhoun, this is, uh, this is on Tuesday. So he was asked about basically, so yeah, Fox Business's Maria Bartiromo um, was um, basically the, the issue of like, okay, if corporations and banks are going to get this kind of bailout, shouldn't there be strings attached? Shouldn't there be some kind of conditions like, okay, if we're going to give you this money, you have to change your behavior. You have to do certain things in order to make sure that like, okay, like you've, you've earned this money and that, so it doesn't create a situation where banks and corporations keep creating crises that the public and, and the government have to keep bailing them out for. So like, okay, there should be at least some strings attached so that it prevents this kind of crisis from happening again. So they don't so have to. They keep should have, have saved up their rainy day fund and not bought so many lattes. Boeing. So uh, this the question was asked about public equity state in um, in in uh, in companies like Boeing, and so um, so basically Calhoun's res- uh, Calhoun's response was, "I don't have a need for an equity state." 
I want them to support the credit markets, provide liquidity, allow us to borrow against our future, which we all believe in very strongly, and I think our creditors will too. It's really that simple. Um, and then he was asked, like, you know, it, like, let's say, okay, like, let's say if the government demanded equity stake in the company in, in return for aid, uh, you know, he was asked, like, if, if the company would reject it. And he said, this is a quote, if you attach too many things to it, of course, you take a different course. So this is a huge red flag. So basically he's saying if if the government asks for any kind of uh, conditions to the bailout, the company would take a different course, which basically means they don't need that money. Because if they have the option of taking a different course, they really don't need that money. So basically, and this is what I mean about the quiet part out loud. This is what I mean about the quiet part out loud is that they 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 could absorb this crisis. The ones who really need the most help are everyday people. These corporations and banks could, yeah, they would get hurt by the pandemic, but not as severe as homeless people and people who have to work, you know, two jobs just to pay the rent. So the question is, who should get the bailout and the most relief at this current moment? Um, the government already made their stance clear. Okay, the ones who should be prioritized are... Uh, big banks and large corporations. So we're going to give them money largely with no strings attached and very, very little accountability and th very little oversight, which again, it's just, just will window dressing. So they don't really need the money as urgency, as urgently as regular people. So I'm going to, I'm going to uh, sort of wrap it up with this. What I, uh, like what I, what I think should be done. Or something that should be that would be better. And some 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 of this stuff has already been floated around by um, some progressive members in Congress, and also based on like what other countries are doing. But I mean, what what should be done are um, direct payments, direct unconditional payments to every everyone, just to at least keep people afloat, just so people can keep buying money to to spend on food and take care of the families and, and maybe maybe you know take care of uh, housing and all that. Um, Obviously, nationalized uh, nationalized the healthcare system. Ireland and Spain they nationalized their hospitals to take to take care of the crisis. I think we should do the same. Just nationalize the hospitals, which is basically yeah, Medicare for all. Just, just yeah, nationalize it. Uh, nationalize healthcare, um, and also freeze rents and mortgages and evictions. Just gonna just freeze it. Obviously, the banks aren't gonna. The frank the banks aren't going to like that because again they want that money to keep flowing. But given that we're in a crisis and so many people are out of work and we're reaching thirty um, percent unemployment, people aren't going to have money to pay for their rent. So yeah, let's just freeze rent. Um, um, ex I, yeah, excuse me. Maybe and maybe I can use this to as a bridge to talk about the real victims in this crisis, Adam. And that, of course, let's all let's all prayers up um, for the landlords there. They're, they're really hurting, okay? Oh, they, yeah. Oh, God. They, it's very unfair of you to suggest that just because you don't have an income that you can't pay the rent and that, like, you shouldn't be kicked out for that just because the economy is tanking. Um, excuse me. Those landlords depend on your rent to survive, so you can't just yeah. deprive them of that just because you don't have any method of ensuring your own survival. That's not fair to them. And, you know, oh, yeah. look, okay, the, it, it's funny, it's funny, actually, um, two things about, you know, it's landlords have kind of flown under the radar as like a sort of public villain 
for a long time in America, but it seems like, or at least on the lefty corners of the internet I hang out at, um, people are kind of um, coming around to the idea that, like, they are inherently parasitic, um, oftentimes in the form of, like, uh, wishing death upon them and usually following that with a picture of Mao Zedong or a Wikipedia article about mass killings of landlords under Mao Zedong. Look, all I want to say about that as someone who, you know, generally has a pretty positive view of Mao is that um, as much as I would like that, like, like what they, you know, sort of in that sort of pre-revolutionary period, a lot of the landlords they're going after were more like warlords or like uh, plantation owners than they were like the, you know, Gen Xer, you know, with a within a investment bank with a like a software job that you're that like you know owns your apartment complex at the same time like landlords there's a lot of like oh well you know my aunt owns like is a landlord and she owns like one or two properties and like oh wouldn't it just be really you know it's like she's not like making a lot of money she's not exploiting people um this is it's it's very deep problem because Like I was bringing up about land speculation, like land, especially in America, is sort of like this path, you know, and this is part and parcel of settler colonialism because it's based on sort of the idea that there's always more land. Um, In economics, land is like the ultimate, like, limit, scarce commodity because you can't make more of it. But you can if you just, like, take other people's land. Um, And sort of we've always used land as a means, as a safety valve for, like, the inevitable class conflict that comes along so like uh right if you're a european settler and you're like you know you're not like a serf or whatever you're not like eating shit at the bottom of the feudal ladder but like you know you you want you want more for yourself and you're never gonna be a you're never gonna be a baron or whatever so uh you decide to move your family to America where like they're just giving out land or whatever. And maybe your wife is like, I don't know if that's a good idea. And you're like, shut up. You don't have any rights. Um, and you get here and they're like, all right, oh, you know, maybe the Homestead Act passes or whatever. like, all right, you get your old land. But turns out like, oh, it's too late. Like all the good land's been bought up by like these large plantation owners. And so you're either you either end up working for them or you're like stuck farming rocks, you know, in West Virginia or whatever, you know, and so then you get mad, but then you're like, oh, well, we have like half a fucking continent of land. So instead of being mad at the, you know, planters, at the plantation owners and stuff and the banks, you know, you get to, you know, and this was sort of the populist wave, you know, in uh in like one of the big populist demands in the late 19th century was like opening up the frontier there's always like this push to open up the frontier displace more indigenous people so we can open up more land for settlement so more people can come in and like you know but eventually you do run out of that um and also and also uh, to to expand the system of slavery as well yes yeah that that was that was that was yeah. why they wanted that land in the first place yeah that was that was a huge reason why they wanted it but yeah but it, i mean that was it was a very hotly contested topic because yeah there is there were sort of two like competing bourgeoisies it's kind of how i understand the civil war where it's like competing settler colonialisms i don't really buy the whole like oh this it was actually a revolution kind of crap um i think that's liberal bullshit but sort of 
drawing it back to uh, the kind of bringing it back back up to today. So that by the end of the 20th century, you know, it's not like settler colonialism is over. It's a structure, not an event, which means like sometimes we think like, oh, there was settler colonialism happening, but it's done now. There's nothing we can do about it. That's not true. Decolonization can always be on the table. But sort of what we term like the primitive accumulation of capital eras, you know, whatever. I didn't make up the name, so don't get mad at me. Um, That was basically over by sort of the, you know, 1910s, (laughs) 1920s. And America was like becoming a fully industrialized society, or at least like large parts of it. Um, And so it was now like the class conflict became a lot sharper where it was where like you couldn't just like be like a homestead or or whatever i mean that was less and less sort of on the table um and so it became a problem you know and this is this is the cl- problem of class conflict that has got, existed for centuries thousands of years and you know america's never we we over marxism we jefferson thought like yeah jeffersonian democracy everyone just every man just owns his own farm then we won't have to worry about it it's Total bullshit. Um, but it's hilarious how many people like how many people still today think that it's a thing. Um, but obviously, expropriating the bourgeoisie, we aren't going to do that. Um, but you know, there's a bit of a problem. So you know, the sort of compromise that they uh, that the bourgeoisie made with the white working class, which was you know, I guess enough of a majority at the time, which hey uh we have some technical difficulties um yeah i don't uh i think usually when we start getting into deep shit um the internet just doesn't like us yeah they're trying to silence us yeah it's silencing us or i silence myself by having a terrible computer yeah um, um planned obsolescence um yes anyway so yeah yeah Peter, you... i was i was really like getting in, i was in the fucking zone too okay so yeah peter you were talking about i guess that sort of suburban compromise and then why landlords yes. are banned right yeah Bad. well so the point is that um the compromise that was made is basically like you know so the american dream is that like yeah, you can be a pro idiot, you know, but we'll let you, you'll be able to generate your wealth through owning a house, through owning a piece of land, real estate. And mm-hmm. as long as housing prices stay stable, you know, relatively, then that can appreciate as a value. Um, that sort of, I mean, you know, it maybe worked for the 50s, you know, when you could like, keep housing prices stable by preventing all black people from moving into your neighborhood. Um, I think by the 80s, it really um, did not do that. And I think I feel like this is probably when house flipping came in and like, you know, sort of every sort of like fake, woke, fake, deep kind of like entrepreneurial guy was always like, yeah, man, you got to get into real estate, Um, you know, and it is also very much like, um, yes, well, you know. Now that I, I've made maybe, uh, I've been able to save a little bit of money, you know, by working hard and scrimping and doing all that shit that they want you, you're supposed to do. And now I want to be able to make more money out of it. And so, right, the easy, you know, sort of the thing that everyone tells you to do 
is buy property and then rent it out so you can have a source of passive income. This is how you ascend classes. First, you were a worker who sold their labor um, to earn money to live. And now you are someone who lives off another the product of another person's labor. And, you know, people that just that is a very significant distinction. And the, whether you that uh, you do that to one person or you do it to 500 people, it doesn't change the fact that that's what you are. Um, you know, in a sense, you are a parasite. Now, you may not want to think of yourself as that. Or maybe, you know, you're the good landlord who, like, always does the repairs and, like, man, this is hard work. But at the same time, you know, and maybe you don't make that much money from it. Um, I don't necessarily believe you. I mean, yeah, if you only own one property, you're not going to be, like, raking in the millions. But the whole thing is that, like, if if all these small, you know, kindly old landlords were just not in it for the love of the game because they just love housing people and charging them rent you know and they weren't out they wouldn't be and they were out to make profit i mean they wouldn't be doing this like the reason people do it is to make money is to is because it's profitable so it's the same thing with small businesses i said because this happens in like the restaurant industry all the time where like these small business entrepreneurs are all like uh no man like uh we uh we're we're actually we're actually getting hosed here, and it's the it's the workers who are living off Easy Street. They're making all the money. We're not making any well money. You know, we we're we're barely scraping by. We're making less than you. I mean, my boss always tries to tell me shit like that, and it's like if that were true, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. Like if it's so bad, then trade places. They would never do that. They know that like they are making more money doing this than they would. But it is a fragile system, so. You know, on some level, it is like, yeah, they are dependent on your check coming in every month because that they're, you know, on some level, they need you to eat <laughs> um, or I don't know, you know, or at least like keep their business afloat. So it does make both things can be true where it's like, oh, yeah, there are, you know, small landlords. Maybe they're not the hugest enemy unless they're like really terrible people. Right. Um, But. It is also true that, like, they literally live off of another person's livelihood. And it's not, a, like, I have a, I got a nice sticker on my computer, you know, with a big hammer and sickle in front of the a phrase. And it says, owning things is not a job. And it's not. I mean, there's some work involved. Look, okay, yeah, you got to fill out some forms or whatever. Um, it's not a job. Owning things is not a job. Running right. shit's not a job. If it were such a terrible job, the way these people complain about, you know, I mean, fine, whatever. You might have a couple of bad tenants. I mean, that doesn't negate the like the reality mm. of the system. It's the same thing. Like, okay, cops have to deal with a couple of genuine assholes. It doesn't mean that that doesn't change the function of the police. Like those assholes, you know, they they don't they're not the reason the police exist. Um, and you know, terrible tenant. It's not like yeah, sometimes landlords have to eat shit on a terrible tenant or whatever. Uh, though, honestly, my heart goes more to the tenant. But it still doesn't matter. Like, that... So, yeah, it's it's completely insane to suggest that, like, oh, if you... Like, I'm still entitled to your money, even, you know, even though, like, the entire economy is such that, like, you know, a third of all people, like, can't work. 
and uh no but i'm still entitled to your money and you know these people say uh oh well if the landlord the landlord should have saved up they should have had a rainy day fund um a lot of landlords not very responsible that's why they tried to take the easy route um so that ends the you know historical lesson on landlords and why they're bad and why you know you may have a parent or a relative or an associate who is a landlord and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a bad person but you know that system itself is bad and it there's arguments that it's necessary under capitalism i agree because capitalism needs a mobilized workforce so yeah to some degree they are necessary under capitalism but you know just like the police like it's all tied at you know like it doesn't make it not exploitative and like the problem is that the only reason way you get rid of that exploitation is by you know attacking the whole system so there is um to that point um there is a story in gothamist that uh, was reported today um the headline is landlord worth one billion dollars exploits coronavirus packet panic to jack up rent 25 percent um so this is in hell's kitchen in new york city so um there's a woman her and her husband they're renting a one bar one bedroom apartment in um hell's kitchen for 3200 a month so three thousand two hundred dollars a month um just don't just don't live in manhattan guys i don't know well i mean like this is this is kind of the reality throughout most of the country so the president of the this is a luxury real estate company they're the ones who own the property so there is i guess an email that said we have high demand for medical personnel coming to nyc with javits center turning into a hospital um and so gotham reports as a result of that demand, the landlord would have no choice but to hike the tenant's rent to 4000 a month under the new lease, according to emails shared with Gothamist. The 25% jump was, at this time, the best we can offer, a representative for the landlord wrote in another email. Um, they also mentioned a website for the company boasts that their real estate holdings are worth more than $1 billion. So, yeah, this is, I mean, this is, you know, so this is, yeah. similar to the banks and the corporations, this is one example of even landlords using the crisis as an opportunity yeah. to uh, line their pockets. Yeah, and, we and, and not pro- And also not provide relief to the people who need it the most, which I think really needs to be bare repeating because that was a lesson of the 2008 financial crash, which, which was, okay, during this kind of, you know, it's very severe crisis. Who's more deserving of the most relief? Is it the banks and corporations, or is it the people? Um, and in two thousand eight, what Obama did was like, okay, give most of the relief to the banks to uh, to again ensure the stability of that market system, rather than take care of the people. And another critique of of markets as a system is that. Uh, well, one, markets are prone to periodic crises and instability. Um, so that means like they're very risky. And also markets as a system aren't the best way to allocate resources to meet people's needs. Um, so and, 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 and so like even like the reason why I mentioned direct payments is that even under that market logic, it makes sense because if people get direct payments, that'll go back into people paying their rents and, and, and mortgages. So it would still ensure 
the stability of the market system. So, you know, say they're making these direct payments, but it's like, it's not that, I mean, $1,200, like you can, that's, that's not even enough to cover rent in anywhere in the Bay Area. So, um, but I mean, to, to go even further, again, I think what, what should be done is to freeze rents and mortgages and evictions. And also we can go further and just have like, you know, real debt jubilee, just, just, yeah. just cancel everyone's debt and start over and also I mean, the federal could, government owns most of it anyway yeah and and also even when it comes to housing we could just be like hey you know what um given there was already a housing crisis before this pandemic because i think one thing this pandemic is is showing is is how profoundly unequal and unstable our eco- economic system already is and the pandemic is basically showing that our economic system as is can't absorb this kind of crisis. So Marcus, so Marcus fundamentally can't absorb crises. Um, so that's why they need the public to bail them out, right? Um, and I think this pandemic is is like that on a very um, extreme scale. So you know to basically you know to to kind of wrap up talking about this stimulus i mean it's just basically highway robbery right it's this corporate the big corporate america and wall street are just robbing the public dry and what's kind of the, the reason why i wanted to i wanted to mention trump and his administration is that the reason why this crisis is as severe as it is is because of his administration's mismanagement of the crisis and i i forgot to mention that um a lot of senators knew about the pandemic and what they did was sold their stocks a lot of them sold their stocks real, <laughs> right real students of the game honestly respect so um so yeah like i mean people at the very top knew this was going to happen but instead of preparing for it and what to do to protect the overall public health of the country they decided to again preserve the overall market system, the, the market system stability, and to line their own pocket because that whole market system fundamentally benefits people at the top. It doesn't benefit um, everyday people, and does it doesn't it does not benefit uh, people at the bottom. And and I will say, like um, you know, I, I gave credit to Bernie Sanders when it came to sticking in you know unemployment benefits, but I, I really think. Um, uh, I think Bernie Sanders probably showed maybe the best leadership compared to everybody else, but I, I do I do think like what Sanders did wasn't was not enough, and the reason why I say that is because even Bernie Sanders he's still working within that market system, and he's what he's doing is basically providing a larger safety net and you know at least some relief for the instability of the market system during the time of a pandemic. So it's better than not having that safety net but you know it, it which again it it goes back to the previous lesson of the two of the 2008 crash which was the problem was the the uh uh the, the fundamental nature and risk and instability of the capitalist private market system um and and not willing to work outside of it so when it comes to let's say housing and and rent well, okay, well, how about, like, we find some way... One thing I like is the community land trust model, among other models, like, you know, public housing and all that. But I think community land trust, what I like about their approach is that they get to the heart of the of um, the fact that the reason why rents are so high is because the land, the 
property the actual building sits on, not the land itself. I mean, uh, yeah, it really comes. Sorry, the price comes from the land itself, not the structure. So what they do is like have a nonprofit who, again, it's not like a landlord owning the property. It's a nonprofit that owns the land. But what it does is people still have to pay rent, but the rent is not so high that it's outside of people's uh, um, means of, of paying off that rent. So, you know, that kind of approach works outside of the market system. But in terms of what's being put in this bill, what's being discussed, there are no solutions that are being proposed that work outside of the market system, which fundamentally at the end of the day would help people, you know, things like freezing rents and mortgages i will say like i mean uh being that i live in i live in the bay area um um, the matt haney um and hillary hillary ronan of uh the board the who are board of supervisors in san francisco they're they're proposing a rent and mortgage moratorium in order to prevent a great depression um another supervisor dean preston who was um previously a member of tennis together in in uh in california um he's now uh, been elected to the board of Super- supervisors in san francisco um he and i think a few others organized to basically i think take over a hotel and use it to house um it was some property that, that they bought up and used it to house uh homeless people to take care of them during the pandemic so at least on on at least in the bay area and other parts of the country you do see like some proposals that are outside the market system but i think what's fundamentally missing is that uh, again the pandemic is showing the fundamental instability inequality of the capitalist market system and it cannot meet the challenge of you know um taking care of people's public health during this pandemic what it's really going to do at the end of the day is preserve the integrity and stability of its own system it's basically it's it's the system is designed to preserve itself which benefits the people that's at the top and this bailout this stimulus package the quantitative easing i think is all um very solid proof of that um and also yeah there, there needs to be universal testing because the reason why we have to do social distancing distancing is because we don't know who the hell has the virus and who doesn't with universal testing and just having just everyone you know get a test like in south korea and china it makes it easier to pinpoint who has a virus who doesn't and who needs to be quarantined and who 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 is you know free from the virus and who can who's safe to go outside without worrying um so yeah i i think those are the things that you know should have been not even just in the bill this is beyond specific legislation but things that really should be done nationally on the on the national level state level local level but we're seeing none of that and one of my um uh concerns is that um right now actually there is a poll hold on let me me pull it up one one second actually okay yeah this is in politico but there is a poll that was done um a majority of americans yeah so 55 55% of Americans according to an ABC news poll approve of Trump's management of the hey. public health crisis. This is in Politico. That doesn't surprise me. 43% disapprove. So again, that's what that's why I mentioned how the Trump administration's mismanagement and the fact that they didn't um pursue aggressive universal testing when they first heard about, you know, the signs of this pandemic likely reaching the United States. Um, 
because that point is not hit home, the result is like a majority of people now approve of trans management because what's being reported in the news is that, hey, you know, people are getting checks, people are getting checks and blah, blah, blah. You're going to get relief and all this other stuff. But it's like, that's not actually what's going on when you dig into the weeds of this bill and what's actually going to be done. Um, And I think, you know, there's another poll that was saying um, that there's very real, yeah, I think it's like somewhere over 60% of people expect an economic recession to come as a result of the pandemic. Um, So, yeah, uh, I mean, this bill is, I mean, not surprising, but still frustrating because the level of robbery in terms of trillions of dollars is, you know, that's the kind of shit that like sparks revolutions. I mean, like, if or you look it at the, should. I mean, it should. Uh, yeah, it should. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I, if, you, I, if, if you look at the French and Russian revolutions, I mean, very similar conditions. Uh, it's, it's going to have to, it's going to have to get worse, honestly. Um, yeah, that's true. It's, I like, I don't know. I, it's, it's being part of it is like literally just being trapped at home. It's hard to like sort of get around and like feel the sound of the social rage. I don't know. It's interesting. And also we can't feeling. protest either because of social distancing. So yeah. is that, yeah. so, which kind of feeds into, you know, people having these conspiracies that, Oh, maybe they actually did create the virus to pr- prevent people from gathering, which means that they can't protest. And, you know, uh, we, we, people can go down a rabbit hole, or whatever yeah. kind of conspiracy. Uh, theory. Uh, <laughs> There's some look, look, guys. Don't don't be don't 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 be a science simp, okay? Um, white people have ruined simp now, but we're gonna get a little more um, use out of it. Don't be a science simp. Um, don't be don't be the like. Oh well, yeah. I mean, look, keep your keep your brain a little a little just, just a little bit, just a couple just a couple dials towards the weird end because they know how to like like. They know how to manage reality. And, you know, on some level, Trump's completely bungled it. But it's like, was did they bungle the Iraq war or did they do it perfectly? Like, like human lives don't matter to these people. I mean, exactly. yeah, it's a fucking election year. Like, you want you think about the shit that people, I mean, Republicans, but also, well, 64 was fucking, was fucking LBJ or 68 right. was, was, I think this was for the Democrats. I mean, they knew the Vietnam War was lost. But they kept it up during mm-hmm. '68, precisely before you know, the like the election. Same Iran Contra. Same like that's the kind of shit that like these people are willing to do just to win an election. You know mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with democracy. This is so on some level, it's like yeah, no, the system's finally being laid bare. Apocalypse means uncovering, which it does. But at the same time, none of this shit falls unless we make it fall. And so people just, if you like, I, I don't, I hate feeling sort of like there are times this week where I felt very powerless about, you know, anything I can do about my own situation or, you know, the situation at large. And I hate that feeling. I mean, I hate the idea that's like, oh, well, I guess I should just stay home and get high or whatever. Um, Fuck that. I mean, I want to say fuck that, but like. At the same time, like, this is world, these are world historical forces and, like, you know, sort of the kind of, you know, bravery slash arguable insanity that led to revolutions in the past. Like, that's the kind of level we need to be on. Like, this is about, you know, acting upon history revolutions and things of that nature. 
so um are acts of will and you know i you know personally i think that uh only a party of workers is going to get us anywhere where we need is going is the only vehicle that can enact any of these things no you know and that doesn't and that may be through the electoral route or maybe through other routes but as long as that organization exists and the thing that bothers me about all this like political moment is i'm worried that we're wasting it i'm worried that um you know people are all sort of woken up you know jostled and angry and realizing what the fuck's going on but there won't be no one will seize or capitalize if you will on that and you know then like yeah in five months it'll be you know people are like we'll never go back to normal but like america's never been normal so whatever the shit was that we had like it's you know we'll go back to that you know unless there's a this is like you know sort of like the high like french marxist shit where they talk about like dialectics and ruptures and negating negations and all that stuff basically what they're talking about when they say stuff like that is like yeah you can like struggle against the forces that be but you know eventually you'll tire out and everything will go back to the way they were and you know dialectical materialism what that is about what revolutions are about and you know sort of the thing that changed you know the whole course of world history was like the knowledge of how to of and the idea that like oh no this time we're we're gonna take over and remake society and that's the thing that like that's not a thing that i can tell you how to it gets figured out or anyone else that's a thing that we have to do together and i like we desperately need to do it and i you know i'm even where i even i even have questions about you know bernie or like at the end you know sort of whenever this primary season stuff is over um you know is it are it's like i think a lot of people are ready to sort of take that next step but there's something, you know, there needs to be some sort of organizational structure or something. You know, I think there might be ways Bernie can lend his imprimatur to, you know, that kind of a st- structure or a new party system, a new party. It's not just a third party. It's the party. That's what people have to get in their heads. It's not like a third, like Canada has three parties. It doesn't change anything. Mexico actually has three parties also. That, that, there, that doesn't change the system. So but does it's, Brit- so does Great Britain as well. They have a third party. Yeah, uh, the Lib Dems aren't aren't a real party. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's not. It's like, but having a real Labour Party in the United States could fuck a lot of shit up. So that's that's the thing that I guess I come back to until until I see real movement on that. I'm not. I, it's very hard for me to really kind of get animated about politics anymore. But I will. I still, you know want to like explain and like communicate like how terrible everything is because this is some rare shit i mean history is back and we are watching it and it's not it's not really that fun to watch i kind of would go back to the 90s if that were an option but it ain't about that yeah yeah uh we've definitely gone on long enough yeah i mean yeah we'll wrap up but i mean um I mean, yeah, that that was, you know, this bill is pandemic. 
Um, I didn't you know, even get into and, Cuomo. Yeah, we didn't even get into. Uh, we'll we'll talk. We can talk about Cuomo in another episode. We also there is also this New York Times article about the Sanders campaign. I wanted to get into, but we can talk about that in another episode. Maybe a bonus episode. Stay tuned. Um, yeah, but I'll I'll just I'll just sort of uh, give my sort of final hot take of this. Um, I mean, I, the 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 systems again fundamental um, inequality injustice. Uh, I think is just being laid bare ever more. On top of more and more evidence of it being laid bare ever more. Um, but, um, I, I don't know. I think there's something about this country, America, that, you know, even on people, the, the, the left, whatever you want to call it in America, quote unquote left, is always this discussion of like, you know, how come things aren't going to fundamentally, ch- how come people don't rise up in America when there's all this injustice? And I think one thing is America as a country which I think makes America different than other countries. I think we're a lot more pacified and subdued and abused as a population. Um, And I I think there's just, you know, you can, I think you can see it even with the election that I think part of, um, I'll just shoehorn this quick point, um, which, which will tie into that. Again, that New York times article about the, about the Sanders campaign and like, you know, how come like the question is like, okay, how come, uh, 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 Sanders, uh, how come he wasn't able to secure the nomination, even though most people agree with his policies, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Well, I think it's like you know, people uh, when people vote, I think a large number of people don't vote on on that kind of impulse. Um, it's more like I think what was going on here is is you know who's going to beat Trump. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are like. Yeah, I agree with Sanders' policies, but I don't think I don't think he's going to beat Trump. I think someone else is going to beat Trump, like Biden or some other person. And I think that's something Sanders. I don't think he ever really uh, got over um, in this election, and and I think like you know for a large number of people uh, in this country, and I think what would explain why Donald Trump has a high approval rating in contrast to the fact that yeah like this pandemic and the why why it's so bad in this country is because of his administration's mismanagement but i think it's because you know a lot of people get their news from the tv and and just cable to cable television and you know not digging deeper into this stuff and so um you know i really think that the level of propaganda in america is a a lot it's incredibly deep and deeply institutionalized and deep in america's culture that i think that's one of the things that prevents um america uh, the, the majority of americans from you know rising rising up or or whatever so um but but i don't i don't you know and if that you know that at times like kind of makes me feel like damn like especially as someone who's been covering um guantanamo and and housing and policing and seeing you know like some of the dirty shit that our country does abroad and at home um you know yeah it is kind of like geez how come why aren't people rising up to change these things well it's like i think you know a lot of people know they know things are bad but it's like hey what are you gonna do let me just get a little peace of mind and a peace of mind 
piece of the pie, you know, like I'll just, I'll, I'll just get like my little piece of the American pie and just take care of my family. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I know things are bad, but I'm not going to do anything because I can't do anything. Yeah. It's a self-reinforcing thing. I also think that, um, I mean, I'd also historically speaking, I mean, the empires really got to be in serious trouble before I think people really start to move on stuff. However, I also think that's going to happen in this century. So I like I it's it's hard for me to understand that we'll see. I mean, they charge Maduro with drug trafficking, which is some real next level shit. Um, so we'll Empire's got some fighting it left, but um, I don't think they're I don't I don't know. I, I think that it won't be until then that sort of like just the general mood on the street will be you know, ready to completely turn everything over. I mean, if we talk, if you want to talk about the Russian revolution, I mean, it took like three years of world war one, just getting absolutely devastated before it was like, Oh, now we're now. Okay. I mean, it took the China, it took the invasion Japanese occupation of China before, you know, sort of public support shifted to Mao and the PLA. I mean, French Revolution. I mean, the Paris Commune was a product of the Napoleonic Wars, you know, and the dis- dissatisfaction after that. I mean, I think that, like, yeah, we really got to see. The Empire's got to really take some serious hits, um, I think. You know, barring that, it is like, yeah, we're... So it's hard, so it's hard to not feel like this is kind of a historical fate. This is a problem with Marxism, but um i also think like all these things are going to come in the next 30 to 40 years so i think we need to be you know thinking about that and being willing you know we like the democrats especially you know and the media overall really wants you to have these sort of these blinders on and they don't they never want like regular people to think long term unless it's on like the parameters they want you to they they don't want you to recognize patterns. Um, they don't want you to think about like, wait, how does is this actually going to work? Um, they just want you to like go from one election to the next, and every election is the most important election of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that's why that's they why they make it very. They I actually I think it's terrible television, but a lot of people like it. And they'll keep watching it, and it politics will continue to be a spectator sport. And I guess I'll close with like, I get really mad whenever people make jokes about the revolution will not be televised because like you really did not understand what he was saying in that poem. Yeah, and it's like mm-hmm. you can't. The revolution will never happen by you sitting at home and watching on TV. It's not a like medium is the message. Like it's like that. Like the amount of political participation that is required um is not is you know cannot happen like in something that gets broadcast on television it's so much bigger than that and sometimes like you can feel it you get glimpses of that feeling of like that kind of big levels of change you know and it is those glimpses that you know are sometimes the only things that carry me through that in spite but we don't really have a choice other than to keep working at it so i think it's important to sort of like learn what we can from this situation and try our best to get through it um and 
keys remain focused eyes on the prize people um more elections will come and they'll be bullshit but we gotta we gotta gotta stay focused um yeah with that i think yeah we should probably head out um i actually have a pretty good day today i got some writing done which was rare good um i got work done yeah i actually did some online tutoring um finally got california well the bay area we were the first ones to do this shelter in place before the rest of the country before much of the country mainly because i think one of the cruise ships that had a lot of covid covid19 infected people was docked in oakland and so gavin newsom took some very uh swift action and so um yeah we've been in quarantine for i'd say around around two weeks um and so yeah like my students are getting used to online education and so um yeah i mean this is something we're gonna have to get used to and you know as someone who's kind of been living in quarantine for the past two weeks um you know it's it's it it's takes a while to get used to but it's not that bad um i'm seeing people sort of change their habits a little bit we're wearing masks around face masks um more businesses having hand sanitizer and enforcing social distancing and stuff like that and uh um so um but but yeah you know this is going to be a new reality but um that doesn't mean we have to uh give up the fight it's just we just have to we're fighting on new terrain and we have to adjust but the you know the the goal is still the same so um yeah i'll end on that note um keep the faith peace see ya